This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast, uh, a channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Diana Dimitrova. We'll be speaking on a brand new 2021 Rutledge publication that she's edited, fascinating publication called Rethinking the Body in South Asian Traditions. Diana, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So rethinking the body in South Asian traditions, you know, the first question that comes to mind is, well, why do we need to rethink the body? Um, um, like, what is this all about? And, and maybe tie in the, the backstory. How, how did this volume come about? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. The thing is that the body is so complex as a topic and so pervasive, and it basically uh, alludes and informs every aspect of our lives. If you think, you know, not in terms of South Asia, South Asian studies, but everything we do, uh, it's, it has been uh, uh, at the center of uh, uh, every aspect of our lives. And rethinking the body because uh, there has there have been several important publications uh, on this issue. But I think what is um, what has been maybe in a way uh, missing or lacking is uh, having the tradition talk for itself. Like in in our volume, it's 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 uh, colleagues, uh, scholars who work with South Asian languages who have firsthand access to the material in different in Sanskrit and Hindi and other languages and who uh, uh, use a variety of theoretical approaches to basically let the tradition talk by analyzing texts published in uh, South Asian uh, languages. I think this was like a a well needed, uh, I mean, much needed uh, uh, publication over the past years. That's a really fascinating, salient, important point. Uh, Allowing tradition to speak for itself you or i may may know immediately or have some idea of, of what you mean by that 
But for a more general audience, the podcast is an interesting mix, right? Our, our colleagues listen in. Um, and, and of course, it's people fascinated with all things Indic, uh, maybe those from, from, from Hindu homes, maybe not, maybe continuing studies learners. So what do you mean by having tradition speak for itself? And maybe talk a little bit about the intervention or sort of the history of scholarship in this, in this area. Like, what do you mean by that? As we know, like uh, 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 there has been a scholarship in India forever, right? It's a Sanskrit scholarship, Sanskrit aesthetics and poetics. Uh, then you know the the, the encounter with the West, uh, you know uh, the interest toward uh, uh, India coming from Western scholars, the emergence of Orientalism that has done as much good as maybe bad, you know. Then the need for post-colonial studies. But also the, the the critique, you know, toward post-colonial studies that sometimes, you know, people use the victimization, poverty of people just to uh, promote their own um, agendas and so forth. So where's really the voice? Where really the voices of uh, all these people who we study? And now recently, there have uh, there's been a drive for a so-called decolonial approach where we. Uh, uh, study traditions, you know, also to empower people, to let the voices of people uh, being heard. And I think in order to do that, we need to work with South Asian languages, we need to study the communities firsthand, and uh, we need to let people and traditions speak. So I think this is what um, is amazing about uh, this book, that uh, even though it uh, uh, offers a sustained uh, uh, textual and in some cases anthropological uh, study of the question, it also deals with texts written in South Asian languages, uh, which uh, uh, modern languages, which is, uh, of course, uh, very important nowadays. Tell us how this volume came into being. Is this a result of a, an email chain, a conference, uh, you know, a, a pub night? Like, how did this come into being? I've been thinking about this volume for for many years. Uh, basically, uh, it's a product not of one single conference, but of many multiple conferences and exchanges with colleagues. I just found out at some point that no matter what the topic of the conference or the panel is, we've been talking about the body without really identifying it as a topic uh, per se. So this made me think. Uh, uh, let's let's really look at this uh, uh, more closely and let's think of a book you know, that will both incorporate current scholarship on the body and would also uh, uh, present something beyond that, yeah? something that would also discuss the dichotomy of body and mind and uh, how the body has been um, uh, used, you know, to uh, legitimate the power to other communities, to reinforce power structures, and there, you know, it came the idea of this book, and I had all these enthusiastic colleagues, you know, who, who, who were on board. I don't want to take any credit for this book because it's an edited volume, and there are uh, uh, seven chapters in this uh, uh, volume, like colleagues who look at different perspectives, who study uh, the issue uh, uh, in an in-depth way, but also uh, based on their own uh, research. So, uh, it is they who should have the credit for the book, basically nothing. What Diana means to say is that um, she deserves one seventh of the credit because one of the contributions is, <laughs> I'm teasing. Um, um, uh, and surely, uh, yeah, <laughs> surely there's a great deal of labor that goes into the, the work behind the scenes to bring something like this together. But what, um, maybe we should dive into some of the papers. Um, that'll give us a better basis for conversation. So in the first paper by Chris Austin, 
What is the gist of it? Well, first, I'll think his studies um, a Sanskrit text, uh, 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 and uh, uh, he's looking, uh, he focuses on the Harivamsha, or the lineage uh, of the Lord, which is a text from the second or, or third century CE. And uh, uh, he says that it constitutes the oldest retelling of the God, uh, Krishna's life. And he argues that this important text established the divine and genealogical identity of Krishna as a form of Vishnu and as a Vishnu warrior. And he discusses not only the apparent issues of uh, uh, or and male descent, but also the implied and not so obvious concerns about the failure of Petriline in, uh, in the narratives of Krishna's life. Yeah, this, um, uh, the volume I found fascinating, but um, selfishly, Chris Austin's uh, uh, article caught my eye because uh, um, I also study Puranas. We've, we've also had him on the podcast, but they're all fascinating, but it's a rich look at, uh, at um, the Patria line for sure. Um, what would you say is the main takeaway of what Chris is doing? Like, why is he looking at this? Well, I think he, by using the notion of the body as a, a tool for interpretation, he has traced the ritual and mythological anxieties over Patriline uh, and the male body uh, to the earlier Vedic period. And he suggests that the recurring images of corporeal seizure and restriction uh, in the accounts of Krishna and his male offspring are of similar nature to those earlier concerns. And he argues that Krishna's lineage itself can be seen as a male body, which is threatened and restored together with its individual members of the narratives of Harivamsha. So I think it's a very interesting approach, like innovative and kind of, um, it's a fresh reading of the classic text. Sure. Indeed, and, and this this idea that the lineage itself is an embody and this this sort of play on the very corporeal world as you know an, an embodied state, you know, um, mm-hmm. this reminds me of the very beginning of the Markandeya Purana. It's it's so interesting. You have this Purana by um, um, mouth by Markandeya, and how it starts off is uh, Jaimini, a student of Vyasa, comes to Markandeya to ask Markandeya about the Mahabharata. Can you imagine he's a student of Vyasa who wrote the Mahabharata? Yeah. And he's saying, you know, I have these puzzling questions. He's going to Markandeya because Vyasa can't answer his questions, apparently. And his very first question is, you know, why does Vishnu take on a body again? Like, what's up with this avatara? So this is, this is obviously a, a very important theme uh, in Puranic lore. Enough about me. Um, and my pranic fetish. Um, what's the next paper? Yeah, the next paper actually uh, uh, is uh, uh, by our colleague, uh, Ammonius, who unfortunately died uh, last year. And um, this may have also been maybe her last publication. Uh, so um, I had uh, the task also to do some editing in terms of text or whatever, although she was not there anymore, you know, to consult with her so I was very emotional about that and I did everything possible just to resist all the invitations you know by the uh, publisher to do any types of uh, uh, editing of the text just because I did not think it's ethical Um, but uh, um, finally I found a way to kind of do this by just indicating in the footnotes that this has been the 
um, uh, making of the editor, not of the author and all that. It's a wonderful paper um, which deals uh, with uh, uh, the role uh, of bodies in the work of the seventh century Tamil Shaiva poet Saint Tirunavakachar, uh, more affectionately known by Tamil speaking devotees as Appa or father. It's a very well known figure. And uh, uh, he has, it, it has also been known that this uh, poet figure have loaded uh, his own body. And Anmonius argues that Upper's poetic oeuvre is remarkable for its particular attention to those unfortunate characteristics of the human body, uh, which account for its being always distracted by the senses and which have doomed it to perish. So, and she holds that uh, 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 a close examination of the poetic work attributed to Upper reveal complex ideas of human and divine bodies. And she concludes that Upper's poems invite the audiences not to ignore or reject the body, but rather to consider it in multiple ways in search of liberation. So in a way, the body could be an obstacle to liberation, but it could also be the vessel, the tool to it, right? Because the body also holds the work mind, ability to meditate, to love, to serve. So it's, it's a very important paper. And I, I feel that um, we're, we're very fortunate to have this paper uh, uh, in the book. Well, I had to do a bit of a double take when I saw the, when I first looked at the table of contents, because if I'm not mistaken, it was 2019 that Anemonius passed in. And so it was like, no. I thought to myself, this must be her final yeah. paper. Yeah, it took very long for the book to be published, as usual, right? With all the all things and all that. Yeah, but uh, yes, indeed. Uh, I remember I emailed uh, with her virtually like a few weeks before her untimely death and we, regarding the, her article and the volume and all that. And um, I had no idea, of course. And uh, yeah, I wish, no, I, wish I met her in well, person. Imagine... You know, uh, uh, paying how much someone's passed, and then two years later you see an article out <laughs> in their name. It's 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 great. It definitely was her last paper, and um, her legacy yeah. continues. Uh, it happens to be the case that she was my advisor's advisor, and so her work has impacted yeah. me in many ways through my doctoral training and beyond. Absolutely, I've known Anne for many years. Like uh, she was a colleague and a friend, and um, I, I just—it's um, still a shock for me. And uh, uh, yeah, my my sympathy goes out you know, to to her family, colleagues, friends, to to us all. You know, everyone is affected, you know. And she was really loved and appreciated by all. And she was a wonderful person. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. The third paper in the volume. By yeah, Stefania. The, yeah, Stefania Cavalieri uh, uh, um, studies the uh, drama uh, Vigiliana Gita by uh, Keshav Das, who is a 16th, 17th century author, in order to illustrate the multiple values attributed to the body. The author argues that in uh, Vedantic perspective, the body is described in the dichotomy between the self and the world, and it represents the seat of illusions connected to the material creation. She holds that it can be used as a symbol of religious and moral rigor and as a key to political authority or as the abode of deprivation. And she also states that uh, oleographic representations of the body um, of the heretics play uh, a central uh, function 
in uh, iconological analysis, while in poetry, the limbs of the body are popular terms um, of comparison for uh, literary descriptions. And she also examines the path of yogic control of the body that is indispensable for achieving the most unexpected transformations from the acquisition of a different gender to the attainment of final release or moksha. And uh, yeah, I think she concludes that the drama Vidyana Gita reinterprets the relation body-mind in the process of liberation of the self in the light of new religious concepts of devotional inspirations, yoga practices, and secular requirements related to the socio-cultural context of the 17th century. So it's, it's a very interesting paper, which is... Um, uh, which also offers a deep, uh, very uh, um, sustained uh, textual analysis of the text. Um, and I also found her points very, her point very interesting that uh, the combined theology of renunciation propagated by Buddhism and Jain, Jainism with the Sufi literary models of rulers who become ascetics to win victory over the body and attain the utmost reward of divine uh, love. So she looks at Hinduism or Hindu tradition in, in contact also with the Buddhist, uh, Buddhist Jaina and Sufi traditions. So this is also very interesting, you know, very innovative, um, um, very exciting. Fascinating indeed. Um, the next paper you're quite familiar with, you wrote it. Yeah, exactly. The next paper refers to uh, my study uh, um, uh, on the Radha uh, Swami uh, tradition. Like I studied the notions of yoga and bhakti in the tradition of Radha Swami in the 19th and 20th century, which uh, uh, in a way transcends uh, uh, traditional Hinduism in multiple ways. And I um, analyzed, analyzed ritual uh, practice, which involves elaborate uh, meditations known as Surajap yoga or yoga of the sound of the inner current. And I focused on the role of the uh, subtle body in meditation. And I examined the complex links between yoga, bhakti, and pilgrimage, and discussing both uh, uh, yogic meditation and devotional practices, like the practice of collective meditation during the satsang, uh, which represents at the same time the manifestation of the devotee's guru bhakti or devotion to the guru. And in the diaspora, uh, a mental pilgrimage to the satsang in India, because when the devotees meditate in India, huh, they see the image of the guru via an electronic transmission. So they travel not their mind, the mind travels not only upward in terms of tantric conventions, but also horizontally across the globe to be together with the community um, that, uh, uh, in um, India. So in order to study this, I have also uh, uh, examined uh, elements of Radha Swami religiosity, which invite the devotee to long for a darshan of the guru and encourage followers to meditate on him. And I've also discussed the concept of Arti Radhaswami, which represents an internalization of ritual worship, in which the devotee might offer to his guru the parts of his inner body. So this is a Nirguna Arti, the non-manifest. It's not the Arti we know from um, the puja uh, ritual of devotional Hinduism. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So your research um, represents a real affirmation of the body, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, and I, I hope to show that this, the uh, the body and the mind are not really uh, opposed to each other. They're not like enemies, right? We use the mind, we use the body to, um, to work with our mind. So in in Hinduism, I think this is what's fascinating that there's not um, really a hostile relationship between uh, the two. On the one hand, one needs to, if you look at asceticism, one needs to kind of subdue the body. But on the other hand, we also have so many other modern movements and, of course, the Buddhist tradition and that, where one follows such a, a path, if you want, of moderation, mm-hmm. where, where one uses the body in, uh, uh, in order to work with the mind. Would you say that... Um... How do I ask? Would you say that this attitude, that the, the, this inimical relationship between the mind and the body, or the self and the body, the, the, this 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 view that the body might be the obstacle or the enemy, in some sense, Absolutely. would you say? Yeah, sorry. Would you say that's an indigenous Indic view as well? Or would you say that's a projection? Absolutely. And if you allow me, I would like to maybe talk a little bit about what I'm discussing in the introduction, where uh, um, I discuss this issue of uh, the body-mind dichotomy, which is also known as uh, Cartesian dualism. And I explain how uh, the contributions of uh, uh, South Asia thought of Hinduism and Buddhism have helped also Western philosophy, Western thought overcome this, like in the figure of Husserl and uh, uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, uh, uh, who have been influenced by Hindu thought and how uh, uh, it helped them uh, develop uh, concepts in um, uh, Western philosophy in order to overcome this dichotomy of the body in uh, Western uh, thought. Uh, Barbara uh, Horridge has also explored uh, 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 such um, uh, uh, issues but uh, this this concept of melody of, of chiasm etc uh, it's it's also related to the influence of western thought like melo Maurice Merleau-Ponty, which is the conclusion that you cannot be touched without being touched. You cannot touch someone without being touched by that person. And uh, this also has to deal with uh, with the concept of Brahman and Atman and how they raised in Hinduism where, I mean, you can read the introduction, I don't propose to kind of repeat it here, but uh, you know how um, uh, in, in a way uh, 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 Brahman becomes embodied in Atman. And also the concept of Ishvara, which also uh, uh, you know, can be interpreted in this way. So, in a way, yes, I do think that this is the contribution of uh, uh, Hindu and Buddhist thought, this um, uh, a way of looking at the body, 
uh, and this uh, offering ways uh, to uh, overcoming, you know, the dualism the, uh, that Western uh, uh, philosophy had always struggled with. Well, the, the 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 insights that you share in the introduction are are, are fair game and precisely what is of interest in this type of conversation insofar as it curates the material, it orients the reader, it brings out the broad themes of the of the fruits of the labor of the contributors. Speaking of which, uh, what is in paper number five? What's in the next paper? Yeah, paper uh, number five, uh, as I explained, like this is a book, uh, you know, that offers a variety of approaches and variety of uh, perspectives. So uh, uh, paper five um, is, uh, um, or chapter number five, uh, uh, um, is uh, written by Nandi Bhatia, who examines Bakshi Sivna's novel, Cracking India. And the novel appeared in 1992. And the author observes that the novel has become the or text for uh, critics who argue that um, uh, 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 this is how we can reveal religious discourse and cultural uh, nationalism during partition, um, uh, and that they were uh, actually intertwined and in how the enemy was identified in corporeal uh, uh, terms. Batya argues that the representation of bodies, especially women's bodies, has also acquired a prominent place in critical analysis of literature about um, the 1947 partition of India. She reflects on the importance of foregrounding these brutalized bodies, especially women's bodies, in fiction and asserts that their significance lies in bringing attention to the scale of violence that broke out and rapidly became, became, uh, uh, rapidly became genocidal. And the author states that by exposing this unprecedented gendered violence during the partition, literary texts make a feminist analysis possible, an analysis that links the violence on bodies with the intersecting um, interests of community in the state and nation. And the author concludes that uh, in the absence of stories and testimonials of those who survived the violence, literary texts provide the horrific and forgotten stories of ordinary people. So she um, is right, I think, in observing that literature plays an extremely important role here, you know, to, to write the forgotten histories of all those victims of people who suffered, of dispossessed, of the violated, et cetera. And we should not forget. Huh? And today uh, actually is the day of uh, uh, Holocaust Day. We commemorate Holocaust, but, you know, violence and injustice has happened throughout the world in so many ways. And the partition of India and the violated bodies of women is one such instance. So I, I, I think I cannot even imagine how, how important, you know, basically Nandi Bhatia's contribution has been by, by taking up this topic and reminding us of the, 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 the sufferings, you know, of uh, people, the really material suffering of female An bodies. important <laughs> contribution, to be sure. So, what about the sixth paper? Yeah, six, the sixth paper uh, is uh, uh, the sixth chapter is uh, written by Mathieu uh, Beauvert, uh, who explores the Hitcher community in Mumbai in uh, uh, Pune and argues that uh, Hitras, uh, the third gender, are defined by a series of rituals that embody femininity and empower their status. Based on observation and interviews with 25 respondents from uh, different uh, Garanas, Garanas is uh, where the um, the household in which uh, this hijra live. Uh, the author discusses four rituals uh, at the very 
core of the Hijra identity. For example, the uh, rit, the ritual of entry within the Hijra community, the nirvan, the ritual of castration, the dudi pilana, uh, the ceremony of milk feeding, and the uh, tirtha yatra. Uh, this is the pilgrimage to uh, uh, specific sacred locations. He suggests looking at the first uh, three rituals as samskara or rites, rites of passage and holds that his, this analysis will allow us to understand not only the symbolic meaning, but also the shaping of the hijra body that these rituals engender through their performance. Ibovet points out that um, these rituals not only give meaning, structure, and cohesion, cohesion to the community, but also define the entire hijra body socially and uh, uh, individually. So it's a very important paper that gives us an insight into a community that I would say has not been much studied. Uh, and by interviewing people, to come back to our initial uh, conversation, it lets the community you know the people talk, uh, utter their voices. It, uh, uh, and I, I consider this extremely important. A question. And the final contribution, Gita Pai's um when humans pose as Hindu gods? Mm -hmm. We, the chapter uh, seven, um, in chapter seven, Gita Pai uh, discusses four case studies in the United States and in India in the period of uh, uh, 14 years, from 2002 to 2016, uh, uh, which is centered on utilizing human figures in the guise of Hindu devas or gods in print media. And she reflects on the iconography of Shiva and uh, then proceeds to examine uh, two case studies that relate the reaction of Hindu advocacy to the representation of individuals as the dancing divinity in order to market a consumer product or promote um, a new story. She also looks into uh, two cases, um, uh, two case studies of Hindu organizations response to uh, magazine covers that showcase Vishnu in order to publicize the featured stories. So it's an interesting use huh, of the body. The author studies what religious organizations reveal about themselves when they contest representation of human bodies as gods in the media and reflects on their claim that using deities in this way promotes a negative uh, image of uh, Hinduism as it constitutes a commercial misappropriation of the sacred iconography. And Gita Pai argues that religion becomes reified rather than dynamic, and that those who protest against this use of divine imagery expose more about their proclaimed rights rather than concerns over the actual preservation of religious purity. So it's a very exciting uh, paper which studies issues of modernity, which point to the use of religion in print media. And as we know, the print media has been extremely important, right? One talks about print capitalism and all these things that happen with, in relation to nationalism. So now in the terms of post-nationalism or post-colonialism, the question is, yeah, this use of print media, what does it really say about you know, the future of things. I don't think the author gives an answer, right? But these questions, I think, can be revisited huh? in a few decades or few, just, just to see, you know, whether we continue uh, make such use of religion or whether we just um, maybe grapple more secular topics. I don't know <laughs> what 
different video. So orientation will be, but for now, I think it's extremely topical, extremely interesting. No question. Is this work that you're continuing work on the body? Well, um, this is a very interesting question. <laughs> like, uh, um, I'm, uh, I've been actually thinking of revisiting the topic and fo focusing more on the othering of the body because you have probably noticed that a group that is missing from this book, uh, and I as the editor can say it, this is, for example, uh, the Dalits. Huh? We talk about uh, uh, minority groups and how the body has been used uh, to legitimate power, to marginalize. Uh, so in a way, this group has been um, uh, intrinsically implied. But we have uh, uh, studies on that issue and I am thinking that this would be very important, you know, to study also the body in terms of um, Muslim representation, Dalit representation, sex, just to give really a true um, 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 study, uh, uh, a glimpse of the use of the body, the interpretation, representation of the body in South Asian traditions. So um, the book, the current, the, the present book has begun the dialogue but I think we need to go beyond the book in order to uh, uh, really uh, explore uh, these issues in uh, uh, greater detail. Well, certainly um, you'll be back on the podcast to discuss the next book whenever it's out. Um, is, is, is there anything else about the volume that you hope we would touch on? Uh, well, I mean, I uh, just would like to uh, maybe say that um, there are multiple ways of looking at the body. And that uh, all the on the all the, um, uh, the other contributions or studies on the body uh, are extremely um, important. And I mentioned in the introduction also the works of um, Axel Michels, who is actually my Sanskrit professor <laughs> from the University of Heidelberg, recently retired. Um, um, the works of Barbara Holich and Karen Pichilis, the works uh, of um, uh, 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 George Patti, uh, uh, of uh, uh, um, Zubko, uh, of Kasulis, uh, Ames and Tisanayaki, Walker and Cutler, White, Alter. So, so, so many people have written um, on the body, but I just want to say that it's such a fascinating topic, and I hope that our book would uh, invite more scholars to engage with the body and to continue working on this important topic because um, in a way it is also who we are, right? Being, having a body and overcoming the body is, is what makes us in a way um, also human, right? So it's a topic that has um, um, great importance and I hope uh, it will uh, generate further discussions. No, whether we study yogi tradition, uh, uh, do uh, uh, field work among the community, um, I, I think it's a fascinating topic explored further. It's fascinating indeed. I am um, struck by the role of embodiment in the Devi Mahatmya. I, I, you may be aware I do um, Sanskrit narrative primarily, but um, in every encounter with the goddess, in every episode, Devi Mahatmya, she always emerges from the body of other beings. And I believe that's very purposeful uh, in encoding an ideology that's world affirming and, and 
affirming of, of, of the state of embodiment. But as I say, enough about me and my fetish with uh, Indian myth. Um, um, thank you for appearing on the podcast today, Diana. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. All right. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Diana Dimitrova. We've been talking about this brand new 2021 publication, Rethinking the Body in South Asian Traditions. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, and keep contemplating the importance of being embodied. Take care.